Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy helps trial lawyers focus on what they do best by dealing with the difficult issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare compliance, public benefit preservation, and complicated settlement planning issues. Uh, in full disclosure, uh, my day job is CEO of Synergy Settlement Services. Uh, in this segment, we're going to continue our discussion with Sean Dominic. Yeah, so, you know, I. I know you've handled some some really tough and catastrophic cases. Are is there any cases that you've handled that you think were the most influential or important in your career, and and why so? Well, you know, I talked about the nursing home cases from early on, where I got to see those making a real difference uh, for us. And then in, in the medical malpractice field, it, it's you know. I, I handled a bunch of cases and still do involving uh, misread pap smears. And what I've learned from that is why, you know, the question I ask is why is it that these people who are properly trained are making so many mistakes? Why is it that women are dying from cervical cancer when they're going through and getting regular pap smears? That, that didn't add up. And you know, I, I learned that what happens is in some of these large labs, they're forcing their people to read too many slides in a day, do too much work in a day. They don't have time to do their jobs right. And it's profits over people. It's as basic as that. And we see that, we see that theme on the defense side over and over. Why did this happen? Profits were more important to them than people were. And so, um, you know, that those cases have been really rewarding for me as I have seen them, one, fighting against me on the truth and now starting to say, well, we're doing things different. We're, we're doing it different now. We're not there yet. And I'm not only fighting in the courts, I'm trying to get some legislation to happen that will help fix the problems. Because at the end of the day, the best, the culmination of a really good trial lawyer's career would be that we were all out of business. But people, you know, that's not going to happen. But if we can make people a little less careless, make the world a little more safe, uh, then we can feel good about what it is that we've done. So those cases, baby brain injury cases, um, you know, you, you see time and time and time again, the same thing happened, these little babies where when you're looking at the, the rhythm strips, and it, which is really just the voice of the child, and you see on there that the baby is just crying out for help, and these people aren't responding. And it makes no sense uh, to it. And so, you know, you, you handle those cases, and it's they're just so heartbreaking. And we have a system here in Florida that is designed to protect the most negligent of doctors 
in the most brain injured of children. It's crazy, uh, the NICA system. Yeah. And, and so I've got a case right now where it was derailed for three and a half years Well, we fought NICA and ultimately proved that it wasn't a NICA case. But for that three and a half year battle, nobody's helping out this family. Nobody, nobody's, you know, the defense lawyers are all getting paid. Everybody else is getting paid, but the family isn't being taken care of. And, you know, one of the things that really gets me going is, You'll, you know, you see every now and then in the Florida Bar News or the Florida Bar Journal about them doing another set of business courts. They want business courts. And I always call our Board of Governor members when I see that. And I say, is that really what the system needs is to make it easier for Shell to sue Exxon? Is that really what we need to do? How about if we did this? How about if we set up a catastrophic injury court? So that the people who are the most injured, who needed the help the most, the soonest, can get their justice without delay. Yeah. I mean, I see it all the time with families that I work with who are thrown onto the, you know, the government assistance programs because they they just don't have any other way to care for a significantly disabled child. And it's it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's it's tough, and it, it causes the parents to have to be, you know, destitute to get the benefits too. It, it's it's such a such well, a difficult situation. Right, and, and and you see that, and I know you've seen it. And the, and the parents, you know, they they their resources, not just financially but emotionally, are sapped out of them over time because they never can get away. Yeah, they've now become not just parents, but these permanent caregivers. And while they all gladly do it, it, it is not right that that is foisted upon them and that the system just says, eh, too bad. And so you end up going to trial on these cases when the children are seven years old or eight years old. It's crazy. I've got a case that I'm working on up in Tennessee. I do a lot of cases across the country involving failure to timely diagnose and treat strokes. And I've got a case up in Tennessee with a 19-year-old boy who suffered a stroke. And uh, the judge up in this county only does medical malpractice cases two weeks out of the year in August. And I can't get a trial date for three years out. And I go in there and I'm like, I'm picking. And he just says, yep, that's the way it is. And so that the system can be so cavalier to the hurt and the loss and to the humanity. Um, that we need to fix that. Yeah, because in that intervening time, you know, a lot of times people die too. And I mean, it just it's just such a, a tragic, horrible situation all the way around in those those cases for the families, the parents uh, who become those caregivers. It's, I, you know, it's interesting because I was going to ask you about, you know, how do you connect empathetically with your client and what they've been through? That one of the things I, I talk about with our team is is that it's one of our core values, empathy. And 
making sure they understand that the people that we're dealing with have been through something truly life-altering, catastrophic. That's why we're, we're involved in that case. H- how, do you, how do you maintain that connection to what's happened and also then be able to convey it adequately to a jury if the case goes to trial? Well, the first thing is to know that each one of your clients is an individual human being. And you have to treat them like that. You have to give them that respect. And that means that the amount of time that you have to spend with them to really get to know them, go to their house, spend time with them at their house. Um, you know, you, you've got to invest in them. There is no shortcut. Uh, the other thing I think, and I, you know, I keep pictures of some of my clients on the walls as I'm representing them. So that if I feel like I'm having a bad day, all I have to do is look at them and know my day doesn't, <laughs> it ain't so bad. And so, um, and then the other thing is, I think all of us have been through our own personal turmoils and, and difficulties. I know you faced what you had to face with the, the bike uh, incident and what went on there. And, you know, I've certainly had to face the things, things in my life. And so you connect with those feelings and mirror those things together. Uh, and I think that that's really what it is that enables you to communicate honestly with a jury uh, about what it is, what, what is, what was there, what has been taken away and what loss really means uh, in this particular case. Did you, did you see this weekend, the video of that um, Formula One race where the, the crash happened and the car was burning in flames? I didn't see that, no. So, so this, this happens, the car splits in half and the car is sitting there engulfed in flames. And of course, it seems like forever, but because it's a racetrack and Formula One and all that, the people get there and, and he's probably out of the car within 15 or 20 seconds. And thank God he's only had minor burns or something in that type of thing. Think about, and so when I'm watching that, and I'm counting those seconds. And then I'm thinking about like a catastrophic accident that our client might be in on the turnpike. And you think not in terms of 15 seconds till real help can get there, but 15, 30, 40 minutes until real help can be there. And, and those, the sheer terror of those moments, not knowing whether you're going to live and die, not knowing whether the people in the car with you were going to live and die. And so, it's really thinking about those types of things in, in those, those moments. I had a client the other day that was testifying in her deposition. She was in a car wreck where she was forced off the road into a tree and she was, her leg was shattered and, and her car was on fire. And she's talking about how she's trying to get away from the car, dragging her legs behind her and she's pulling on the grass, but the clumps of grass are coming out of the ground because it had been raining. So the wet grass is coming out and she can't get away. So it's, it's connecting with those things 
and listening to your client about what they really went through. You know, as Chris Cersei always said, listen to your clients that try to tell you how to win your case. But you, you, if you're not spending the time and if you're not emotionally there and present with them, you know, by being present, that means being in the room at that moment and being really with them, not thinking about what you have coming up or what you did yesterday. Um, those are the things that you have to do in order to really be able to tell the stories that need to be told for a jury to understand what it is that they need to do to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. I, I, I think back about what happened with me in that accident and the, the fear of all of that. And how do you adequately then convey, you know, and when we had the mediation related to my case, being able to talk to the adjuster about what I had been through and, you know, the, that's where I, that's why I asked that question because it, it, it is, you know, until you've actually yourself experienced something like that, sometimes it, it seems like it's hard to really, you know, get a feel for that. But specifically what you said is listening to what a client has been through about what they, they can convey. Ultimately that can be, you know, used to tell that story. So people get some understanding of what somebody has been through because, you know, some of these things are just, just heart-wrenching. Yeah, and, and what you learn is really the facts tell the story. And, and so it's a matter of getting those facts out. It's not just using adjectives or, or oh, she had to escape from the car that she thought was going to catch on fire, was on fire, right? Okay, what does that mean? But that concept of dragging yourself out in the, the grass, pulling out, that visualizes that brings everybody to that moment and they feel it, you know? And so that's what it is you're trying to do. And then, you know, you, as you know, when I, uh, 10 years ago, God, time flies, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer and went through treatment and then had a recurrence of it. And going back to what we were talking about with our, with the, the family trip. So we had the whole trip planned and then, but, in the gap between when the trial was continued and when it started up, when it was started on, you know, late August, I had a recurrence. So now I had to go and start radiation treatment and other treatment. And of course, my wife was like, I'm not, we're not going to go on the trip. And I said, of course, you're going to go on the trip because what are you going to do? Stand around and stare at me all day uh, with that, go do that type of thing. And so then what was happening Again, I was faced with that choice. Do I tell the client that we continue the case because I got to go through this? And, and so what was happening was I was getting, you know, radiation treatment and the other treatment every morning of trial at seven o'clock in the morning and then getting up there and standing in front of the jury for the rest of the day uh, and doing what needed to be done with that. And, you know, I, I don't say that in any other way that I know that there are a lot of other trials, plaintiff's trial lawyers that would do the same thing. And you do what it is that you have to do uh, for that. And um, sometimes it, at personal sacrifice, but um, through that process, again, you learn about what it is that people go through. You learn about how it is that people deal with things um, and sort of the different philosophies that people have about it. You know, some people, when something bad happens to them, 
it, it's there's a lot of why me, why me type of thing. And then, you know, for me, I think probably part of what we do for a living, but you know that bad things happen to good people for no damn good reason all the time. And so it's more, why not me? <laughs> why am I the lucky one? And in this case, the unlucky one. So you just, when you, when you look at it, for me, when you look at it that way, um, you just realize, man, you just got to move forward. It's all you can do. Right? What, what do they say? What was the Shawshank Redemption? Get busy living or get busy dying, right? Better get busy living. Yeah, that's that's great advice. So can you talk about any of your experiences that you would share with younger lawyers in terms of starting your uh, your own firm and your experiences along that line? Yeah, so I've started two firms um, from scratch, and um, it's not easy. <laughs> but more and more lawyers today are doing that. The, the day of the, the big firms, um, you know, you either have the mega firms now or the small firms where people are hanging out their own shingles. And so uh, the first thing I would say to people is ask for help. Everybody, I go back to everybody is eager for you to succeed. People will do whatever it is that they can do to help you. And nothing is new under the sun. Everybody has experienced what it is that you need to do. But, you know, law school doesn't have a class about starting a business. So you, you go out, what the hell am I supposed to do? So it really is about learning those basics about what it is that you need to do. How am I going to pay for things? What's my budget? What does all of that mean? Um, bring in help. Don't just try to handle every case uh, by yourself. Uh, it, it's okay to bring somebody else in. In the long run, that's going to be best for you. And you have to look at this as a long play, not as a short play. If you look at it as the long play, uh, then you are willing to give away some of your fee today so that you can learn. Because what's the question you always have to ask in every case, in every day? It's what's best for the client. And if you always do what's best for the client, you will always end up doing what is best for you. And you will be a success. So that's, that's the first you know, the, the question that's there. But it's talk to people. Join, join the FJA, join the AHA, join your local trial lawyer organization, ask questions. No question is too stupid. Um, you know, it, figure out how you're going to try cases. Go to lawyers from other firms and say, hey, can I come and sit in on a case that you're going to try? Uh, can I take a witness or something like that? Just so that you can start see it. go down to the courthouse and watch other people doing what they're doing. Right? Go down and watch morning hearings and see what the issues are and how they're doing it. And how, how, what are the good ways to argue to a judge? What are the bad ways? If you hear that there's a really good trial lawyer trying a case in your community, go watch them. Learn, learn, uh, practice. Nowadays, uh, certainly FJA and AHA and there are other uh, companies that are out there that provide you real hands-on opportunity to practice. FJA does the Al Cohn seminar uh, for young lawyers where you get to practice opening statements and you get real life feedback. Um, so you, you have to work on those types of things um, in order to get better. You've got to work on your skill set, whether it's 
playing sports or, or doing uh, plaintiff's trial work. You've got to constantly work on your skill set, work on getting better at it. There's so much information out there. Be insatiable in your quest for knowledge. From a business aspect, what do you think is the most important thing for lawyers to understand about operating a law firm and which model is best? You know, the, the big firm handling tons of cases or the niche? I mean, I know you guys have gotten really a, a, a great niche, but, you know, for, for lawyers out there, what, what is, what's the answer or is there no answer? Well, I, I think... Growth sort of happens as a as part of success over time. More people start calling you with cases, and then two things happen: either one, well, a couple of things happen. Where one is that you start elevating the case value of the cases that you're willing to take. Um, secondly, is that you start hiring people to take on those cases because there's so many cases of value, you're not going to turn them away. So that that just sort of happens organically. And of course, then there are the firms that grow through advertising by investing dollars in it. And that's a different way uh, of growth. But what I have found is if you are a one or two lawyer law firm, you can really operate on a relative shoestring budget and be financially successful and do a good job for your clients. Then you have this thing where all of a sudden you go to four or six lawyers. Well, now you have more lawyers, which means you have more staff, which means you have, and, and the most expensive thing in any business is the human beings that you're paying. You know that. And, and so now all of a sudden you're paying a lot more money out each month. But the problem you run into is you haven't necessarily diversified enough the people who are directly bringing in the dollars to pay for it all. So if you have two of those lawyers have a bad year, and you only have five lawyers, that really can create financial pressure on you. And then as you get to eight or nine lawyers, you start to now have enough diversification where if one or two of those lawyers has a bad year, you can ride it out. So there's that, that unsweet spot in the middle is what I have learned that you have to be really careful about. The other thing is uh, about borrowing money. So we have, on our side, we have on the plaintiff side, we have two things. You have your operational cost, you know, paying your rent, paying salaries, paying bar dues, things like that. That's your operational cost. And you can estimate what that's going to be with pretty good precision at the beginning of each year. So you know what your nut is going to be to have to meet those needs. Then you have your case costs. And those case costs can balloon very quickly. Uh, you know, experts... Anybody who's ever hired an accident reconstructionist, they go from $8,000 in cost to $80,000 in cost in like three minutes. And so what do you do? What do you do about that? Well, you have really two, three, two ways of funding it. One is you invest your own money into, the, into it and, and do that. The other is that you borrow the money. What happens with borrowing the money? Well, if you've got a good bank and, and they like it, you can borrow money at a pretty cheap rate these days. And that's been true for a while and I think it's going to continue to be true. If you're a little less um, stable, a little more risky, you've got to go to some of the other lenders, but those, those can go up to what, 18% compounding. And we've seen firms that have gotten in, there in trouble 
uh, with regard to that. So I would advocate against that uh, as I can. But in any case, so if you can borrow from a bank at a reasonable rate, that is the best way to go, in my opinion, um, because I know that the money that I make, I can invest and in, in generally get a better return than what it is that I'm paying the bank to borrow that on. But what is the key with that? Well, we know that we typically recover, I think most plaintiff's law firms probably recover anywhere from 93 to 98% of their case costs. You know, you lose a case here, uh, here or there, but that, that seems to be, I think, a pretty consistent number. So you don't want to borrow more money than you have out on the street in case costs. Why? Because case costs, when they come back in, are not taxable income because you don't get to deduct them as a cost as you go along. So that's dollar for dollar. But now if I'm borrowing more money than I have in case costs, now I'm having to pay fees, the, the, my income to deal with that. And what that means is that I'm paying it with after-tax dollars. And that's a more expensive and more difficult proposition. So don't let yourself get caught upside down on your costs and what you owe. Great financial advice. So I mean, you've seen you've seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's to me, you guys as plaintiff personal injury lawyers, particularly ones that do these cost intensive cases, it's it's almost a bit like like Vegas. I mean, it is you are rolling the dice. It's a lot of money to bring these cases, and that's something that you know the general public typically doesn't understand is. Uh the amount of risk and expense that a law firm like yours has to undertake is substantial. I, I've, gone, I've gone into trial on cases where I'm walking in that door and I've got over half a million dollars invested in that case. And, you know, you can't think about that, though. Right. You can't think about it. If, <clears throat> if investing money in a case is a problem, then you're either doing a bad job of picking your cases um, or you've just overstepped where you are at the moment. What did I say before? Don't be afraid to go and ask for help. If you find yourself in that dangerous situation, call a more experienced lawyer. Give up a piece of your fee so that the right thing is done for the client. That is that you're not pressured into a settlement because your financial interest is taking precedent over what's best for the client. So, and the, the other thing that um, Pat Ford had said to me when I was a young plaintiff's lawyer, he said, the key to this business is knowing the cases not to take. It's easy to know, okay, the, the coke truck driver jumped the curb and, and hit the person on their bike and caused them a brain injury. Everybody understands that's a case to take. But there are lots of cases out there where uh, you get caught up in it and all of a sudden you've got so much cost in it and the case isn't worth that anymore. And you only need to lose one or two cases in a year with, you know, 300,000 in cost out there to kind of ruin your business model. So it is better for you to really be selective about your case uh, choices. And if somebody else takes the case and is successful, great for them but your business model stayed sound. You know, it's sage advice. I mean, over 20 years, I, 
I can tell you I've seen cases where a lawyer should have co-counseled with another lawyer either because it was a very specialized area of the law or it just was a, a situation where they didn't have the resources and that's you know recognizing that as you said is is so important because ultimately you want to make sure that you're doing right by that that client absolutely and you have to have in order to get top dollar on a case you have to have the power and the ability and the fortitude to say no when they offer you an amount of money and to walk out and then Rod, rodney romano you know rodney one of the best mediators around you know, i was in a mediation and, and i was telling him we're never going to take that amount of money from the defense and he looked at me and he said well you know when they'll believe that i said when he said when you get up and leave i said good advice packed up the bags and started walking out and they come and grab me at the elevator sometimes they let you go but at least it, both ways it's a tell absolutely yeah i've seen that seen that many times a uh, couple of last questions so what do you credit with the success of you personally and your firm? What is it that you believe is is the secret to your success? We care deeply about our clients. We work really, really hard. And we enjoy the living hell out of what it is that we're doing. It's funny, um, you know, one of the one of the things uh, over the years I've become a student of is is the culture, you know, and and that's the culture of of our company is is all mission based, focused on, you know, helping the catastrophically injured and, you know, helping trial lawyers like you focus on what you do best by you know dealing with these difficult issues and that that mission that purpose, you know, your staff understanding who they're dealing with, why they get up every day to do it. And I know, you know, you and I know that intuitively, but, you know, I try to always make sure that our team understands that every person that comes into the company, I specifically onboard and talk about this mission and purpose and really want to make sure ultimately they, they understand that because it is such an important thing that we were, were part of. No doubt, no doubt about that. And it shows when you have a company like yours and the way that they work uh, with our clients and, and, and it is, uh, there's a real relationship that's done because there's a real understanding uh, that happens. And, you know, I, I take all of our employees uh, from the receptionist to uh, the people that stock things and stuff like that. I bring them down and I want them to see trials. I want them to see hearings. I want them to see the culmination of all the things that they do and what it is that we're doing with all of that. Uh, and really to get to get them invested in what it is and to understand what it is that we do because they see us in one capacity in the office and it's a very different way uh, when they see us out there really fighting the fight and doing the battles. Yeah, you know, we do um, a mission moment for every all hands meeting every month and we highlight a case that we've assisted with and give the the personal details about the situation that that client faced just to keep that ever present in front of people so they really know when they're fighting a lien who who they're not fighting for 
John Doe, they're they're fighting for this client who's catastrophically brain injured, you know, because of you know a medical error that happened during anesthesia. Right. You know, I mean, it, it's it's understanding that that that's what's somebody's life has been completely altered and changed, and their their family. I mean, too. That's we we count the number of people we help and families. You know, I mean, that's that's right. what's important. Well, when, when you think about that, and, and am I going to make that one more call? Am I going to ask again for that reduction? And am I going to try to do whatever else it is that I can? When you know who it is that you're fighting for, it makes it much easier to make go that extra step, to go that extra mile when you really know who the, these folks are and when it's not just some abstract person uh, that's there. And so that that's absolutely the way we do it. Life is about relationships. Our business is about relationships. And it's our relationships among ourselves, our relationships with our clients, our relationships with the jury, our relationships with the judges that go on and on. But at the end of the day, it is about relationships. And if you're not forging those relationships, um, you are not going to do the best thing that you can do. Well, that's a perfect way to end. Uh, tell the audience, how can they get in touch with you if they want to co-counsel a case with you, need to work with you in some capacity? Well, uh, I, I can always be reached at my phone, 561-625-6260. That's 561-625-6260. And email, even obviously if I'm on a plane these days, I get my email, though I haven't been on a plane in a while. Uh, my email is Sean, S-E-A-N, at dcwlaw.com. So Sean at dcwlaw.com. Well, thank you to my guest, Sean Dominic, and thank you for tuning in today to Trial Lawyer View. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. You can find more at triallawyerview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.